Thanks, Krista, for that beautiful song. If you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible Gospel, the Gospel of John. We've been spending quite a little bit of time here in John, chapter 9. And so this morning, we're going to continue last week's sermon. I've kind of added a few more things as well. And so we're looking at things that we can learn from a blind man. Things we can learn from a blind man. We'll look at John chapter 9, and I'll read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll kind of pick up where we left off last week. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, praying for deeper insight into this true occurrence of Jesus healing the blind man. God, we pray that you would as well open our eyes so that we could see the truths contained in this text in a way that would change our lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Helen Adams Keller was born on June the 27th, 1880 in northwestern Alabama. You may not know this, but Helen Keller was born a normal, healthy girl who could see and hear. However, when she was 19 months old, she became seriously ill and started running a high fever, probably stricken with scarlet fever or maybe even meningitis. She survived, but she was left both blind and deaf. And because of this, she was cut off 
from the outside world. All that changed when a lady by the name of Anne Sullivan walked into her life. Helen was six years old at the time, and this lady would come to be known simply as teacher. And Helen's life would never be the same after meeting this lady. Though Helen Keller struggled at first in her relationship with her teacher, she came to love her, appreciate her, and allow herself to be transformed by her. In her autobiography entitled The Story of My Life, Helen describes the way her life was changed by this remarkable lady. Keller writes this, quote, Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore and you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship before my education began, only I was without compass or sounding line and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me in that very hour. She continues, I felt approaching footsteps. I stretched out my hand as I supposed to be my mother. Someone took it, and I was caught up and held close in the arms of her who had come to reveal all things to me and more than all things else to love me, close quote. What an amazing testimony of Helen Keller, who we know later became to really uh, read and write in her own way and communicate so many beautiful things to the world. And what I'd like to say based on that opening illustration is that here in John chapter 9, a similar but more awesome encounter took place in the streets of Jerusalem near the temple almost 2,000 years ago. There was a man who was blind from birth, and he had a face-to-face, up-close, personal confrontation with him whose name is love, with him who is the light of the world. And not only would his eyes be open, but his soul would receive sight as well. Physically and spiritually blind, light would enter his eyes and light would engulf his soul. This blind man met the teacher of all teachers. This blind man received the education of a divine miracle. This blind man who could not see, would come to appreciate the beauty of the world and the preeminent glory of our divine Savior. There is so much we can learn from this story of Jesus and the blind man. And last week, we learned three things from this blind man. And today, I hope to give you three more. Just a real quick recap of last week. 
we looked at, we're, so we're going to see a total of six things we can learn. Last week, three. This week, three more. The first thing was this. Trials in this world put God's glory on display. And there was that argument about how did this man become blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sins? And Jesus says in verse 3, it was neither, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we've been reminded a couple of weeks now that God's glory is on display in our weakness. And that when we are at our worst, God is at his best, and whether it's a physical trial or a spiritual trial, God always shows up. So look to him this morning. The second thing we talked about is this, time management in your ministry is a must. You see there in verse 4 where Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. And we spent a little time last week just talking about stewardship of time, that we must be busy while the light of day is here because Christ says in that text, there's one day when the night is coming. So we got to make the most of today, redeeming the time and making the most of every moment. The third thing that we've learned so far is this, techniques differ but the result is the same. And I cataloged with you last week various ways that Jesus has healed various sick people throughout the New Testament. And I basically was just trying to emphasize that while Jesus healed different people in different ways, it's never about a formula and it's never about a method. It's all about God's grace. It's about his divine wisdom. It's about our joy in obeying him and following him and waiting upon him. This brings us to our fourth thing that we can learn from a blind man. I just hinted on it last week. Here we are, number four. Transformation in your life should be dramatic. And I'm going to talk to you, your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, about how this man had a mistaken identity. A mistaken identity. You say, Adam, what do you mean by that? Well, look again at verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. You see, the people who knew him best as a beggar who would sit around the temple asking for money after he was healed didn't even recognize him. They didn't see that this was the man who was blind and now had vision. They were confused. I mean, this man had a new look about him, as if all of a sudden he was a totally different person. This isn't the same man who used to sit around and beg, is he? Uh, Some said, it is him. Others said, no, it just looks like him. It can't really be him because he seems to be so different. He seems to have more confidence He seems to look us in the eye. He seems to have an air about him that something has changed. So what did the man keep saying? He's simply sitting there listening to all the commotion going on. Is this the man? Is this not the man? Is this the beggar? Is it not? He said, I I am. I am the man. It's interesting here. He actually uses in the original language the words ego eimi, which we've been talking about are the same words for Jesus and his seven I am statements. He uses emphasis here saying, I am, I am the man, it's it's really me. And I really like this because I I, I think that we can see that Jesus's work in this man changed his life forever. That while in one sense, he is the same man, in a different sense, he was a different man. And when he says, 
I am the man. It's not because he's ashamed of who he is. And yet, at the same time, we see he's different than who he was. And we, we see here is this beautiful confession. It's still me, but I'm new. I'm different. I was blind, but now I can see. Not only that, we'll be reading and tracking with this man's salvation experience throughout the chapter. If you'll glance down at verse 27, it seems that, that he indicates his own journey to knowing Christ spiritually when he says in verse 27, do you also want to become his disciple? He's implicating there that he is now becoming a disciple of Christ. And look down at verse 38 where it talks about when he says, Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped him. And so what we're seeing here is that this, this man who was blind could now see, and eventually this blind man also comes to true saving faith. People in this world may mistake your identity as being only natural, but you are a supernatural being. There is the outer man, which people see and which which we live in in this world and we relate to one another with that outer man flesh and bone but you're also made out of the inner man the spirit inside of you which is your true soul your your spirit and this inner man is what God wants to radically transform in a person's life and when he changes your inner man just like when he changed this man's outer man by giving him vision when he changes your inner man you'll be totally different You'll no longer have the same identity. You'll belong to Christ. You'll no longer be a slave to sin. You'll be a slave to righteousness. And he changes a man and he changes a woman. And that's the new identity that we need. That we need. If we'll skip on to the next point there, he has, this blind man, shall we say, he has a new identity. That's why they don't fully recognize him. He's so different. Look at verses 10 through 12. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, again, they're asking the questions here. How were your eyes open? If you're the same man that you were, then how is it that you're not the same? And if you are the same man now than you were then, then how did this happen? How could this be? And so in verse 11, the man simply recounts the story. Notice how simple it is. Verse 11, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. I want you to notice here what this man testifies of. He testifies of the fact that he knows Jesus' name. He describes what Jesus did. He remembers what Jesus said. He obeyed Jesus' voice, and then he receives his sight. And may we follow the same suit as we so much are in need of a new identity as well. Do you know Jesus' name? Can you describe what Jesus has done? Can you remember what Jesus said? Have you obeyed his voice? Have you received your sight? Let's look at these five observations of what changed this man's identity. I've just read them to you. Let's go back through them a little bit slower. Number one, do you know Jesus' name? This is the first thing that changed this man as he knew there was a man named Jesus. Instead of asking how were your eyes open? The Pharisees should have been asking, who? Who opened your eyes? 
It was not the mechanics of the miracle that would help the Pharisees. That's all they wanted to talk about. How did this happen? I mean, nevertheless, the fact that guy can see. I mean, you'd think they would be thinking, that's unbelievable. Let's rejoice with you. This is amazing. But instead, they were like, well, how did this happen? When did this take place? They should have been asking who instead of how. And it was the man behind the miracle that the Pharisees really needed to come to know. Somehow, this blind man knew Jesus's name. No doubt, he had heard Jesus's name repeated many times at the temple and during these exciting days of Christ's ministry. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus has the name that is above every name. And at his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus' name? He is almighty. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the chief shepherd of our souls. He is the cornerstone. He is the head of the church. Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Do you know his name today? He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the great I Am. He is the Lamb of God. He is our leader and our commander. He is our mediator. He is the morning star. He is the only begotten of the Father. Do you know his name this morning? He is our redeemer. He is our rock. He is the root of David. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the true light. He is the true vine. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. Let me ask you again, do you know his name? In order to have your life transformed and to have a new identity attached to who you are, you must come to know his name. He changes hearts. He changes lives. Do you know his name? Second observation we can make from this blind man is again, he described what Jesus had done. So I'm asking you the question, can you describe what Jesus has done? This man describes how Jesus made mud and anointed his eyes. This man heard Jesus spit on the ground. This man heard Jesus take a handful of earth and mix it with his saliva in order to make mud. This, in order to make mud, this man felt the closeness of Jesus's breath as Jesus reached out and touched his eyes or his eyelids and anointed his eyes with mud. This man could describe everything that Jesus did on that day. Can you do the same? Can you describe how Jesus emptied himself of all but love and took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men? Can you describe how Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death? Can you describe how on the third day Jesus rose from the grave? Can you describe how Jesus has defeated death and has paid for your sin in order 
to have a new identity, you need to know how this can happen. Can you describe Jesus' sacrifice for you? Can you describe his greatness? Can you describe his love, which knows no limits and has no boundaries? Can you describe what he has done? Third observation we're making here is number three. Can you remember what Jesus has said? Can you remember what Jesus has said? This man remembered exactly what Jesus was telling him. A simple directive, go to Siloam and wash. Can you remember what it is that Jesus has said to you? If you want to be one of his, he says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Not only must we remember what Jesus has said, but in order to have a new identity, God will give you the power to put it into practice. Number four, have you obeyed his voice? All this man needed to do would be to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. That's what Jesus told him to do. And so he says here in verse 11 again, so I went and washed. Salvation does not come from obedience. Salvation comes by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But salvation is never alone. And what I mean by that is salvation is always accompanied by works of faith. And obedience to God's word is what part of what helps the world to see a new identity. And so this man did obey, but it was as a display of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you obeyed Jesus' voice? In 1 John 2, 4 through 6, we read, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so let me ask you this morning, do you know the Savior? Are you obeying his voice through scripture? Are you keeping his word? Are you abiding in him? Are you walking like Jesus walked? Fifth observation we see here is number five. Have you received your sight this blind man said, and I received my sight. The mark of this new man's identity is that he can now see. Jesus says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so let me ask you this morning, have you been born again? Can you see Jesus? A new identity leads to a new ability to see and discern things in the spiritual realm. A new identity leads us into what C.S. Lewis calls Aslan's country. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan's country is the home of Aslan, the great lion. It is described as a series of mountains, 
thousands of feet high, but without snow or ice. Instead, Aslan's country has a clear blue sky, lush green grass, colorful birds, and beautiful trees. And there are entrances into Aslan's country from all worlds, including Narnia and Earth. It is located beyond Narnia's rising sun at the eastern edge of the world and indeed rings around the whole Narnian world. Let me ask you this morning, can you see God's kingdom? Can you see the Savior? Aren't you tired of being blinded by the lies of this world? Aren't you tired of being deceived by the lust of your flesh? Aren't you tired this morning? Come and see Jesus and follow the observations that we're seeing even here of this blind man so that you too can see. Can you sing along with John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was, what? Lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you the same man that you were before you were saved, or are you different? Are you the same woman that you were before you were saved, or are you different? I hope that you would say something similar to what this blind man is now saying. He said, I am the man, it's still me, but now I can see. I am the same person, but I'm different. I am Adam Tyson, but I'm a different Adam Tyson. You see, the reason that you can't recognize me is that my interests have changed. My appetite has changed. My desires have changed. My habits have changed. My speech has changed. My spending habits have changed. My focus has changed. My time commitments have changed. My goals have changed. My life is radically different, transformed by the grace of God. You see, I am the same man, but I'm a different man. And I may look the same on the outside. This is the testimony of any Christian, right? I may look the same on the outside, but I'm under new management, right? The transformation in my life and in your life should be so dramatic that it causes people to say, is that the same person? Is that really them? It may be that you're already saved, but you're being sanctified at such a rapid state of spiritual growth in your life that your life is on fire. And people are looking at you and they look at your marriage and they look at how you parent your children and they look at how you spend your time and what it is you talk about. And they say, could this really be the same person? Are we radically changed this morning because of the love of Christ? The fifth thing that we can learn from this blind man is number five, traditions don't overpower reality. Your first blank there in that sub point is simply says, seeking the assessment of the spiritual authorities. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. The they here in verse 13, when it says they brought him, or they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. The, the they there refers to the neighbors. It was the onlookers of verse 8 
witnessing kind of what was going on and what had happened. And after finally believing the blind man's story, they brought him to the Pharisees to see what the Pharisees would say. This is following the pattern set out in Luke chapter 5 and in Luke 17, where Jesus healed a man with leprosy. In Luke 5, we read, he then charged him to go and show himself to the priest and to make an offering for his cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. You might ask, well, what's that all about? Why would Jesus send a man, in this case, a leper, to the priest and, and then to make an offering and, and, and for that to serve some type of proof? What are we talking about here? Well, back in Leviticus chapter 13, there was a protocol that when someone was healed from leprosy, that they were to go and show themselves to the priest. And when this happens to the leper of Luke 5, and when it happens again to the 10 lepers of Luke 17, the proper course would have been for these men to go to the priest, for the priest to see that their skin had been made new. And as the priest saw that these men's skin had been made new, they should have, number one, verified the cleansing, and number two, They should have announced to the nation of Israel that the arrival of the Messiah had come. That's what was supposed to happen. Go show the priest so the priest can verify your cleanse. And then the priest could say, "Uh uh-oh, the Messiah is here. Only the Messiah could do this. And so in a similar way, the neighboring Jews want to hear from the Pharisees if this man born blind had indeed been healed. Then they want to know if this is a sign pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, no one had ever healed a blind man before. Lepers had been healed, such as Miriam and Naaman. Hezekiah was healed from a terminal illness. Israelites had been healed on a couple of occasions. One was from venomous snakes. There was also the plagues that inflicted the Jews a couple of different times that were stopped after the prayers of Aaron and David, but no one had ever to this point in time been healed of blindness. This was a new thing. This was to point to the Messiah's arrival. In fact, in the New Testament, you remember when Jesus healed, uh, uh, well, well, let me just say this first, in the New Testament, the miracle of healing a blind person occurs more often than any other. Of all the miracles in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament, there's more healing of blind men than anything else. And maybe you even remember when John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Do you remember how Jesus answered him? He said, go back and tell him this. And then he says, go tell John that what you have seen and heard, and the first thing he says is, the blind receive their sight. We could just stop right there. What he's saying is, I am the Messiah. He gives a long list of things that he did. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised uh, up, the poor have good news preached to them. But when he says in the first part of that list, the blind receive their sight, it's in the front of the list. This is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35. There's one more thing that John inserts here in verse 14 that we can't miss. Notice that he says it was on a Sabbath day. It's on a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so we're going to see this play out big time 
as the Pharisees will have to decide whether it was right or not for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. And so how did the Pharisees respond to the blind man? They simply asked him how he had received his sight, and the man tells them his story. He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. So far, so good. No one can argue with that. No one can argue with this man's story. So before we tackle this idea of the Sabbath, they're just trying to verify, is he really healed? Nobody can really argue with the fact that this man was a changed man. He was blind, and now he can see. All he's doing is he keeps telling his story over and over. He's like, I've already told you. He told me to go wash. I went and washed. He had put mud on my eyes. I washed. Now I can see. By the way, I believe that your personal testimony of how you came to Christ is one of the most powerful tools in evangelism. People can argue against your beliefs. People can argue against your theological convictions. People can argue about whether or not they believe the Bible is true. But no one can tell you about you. They must listen to you share about a change that took place in your life. You were once a slave to sin. Now you are free in the spirit. You were once filled with guilt and shame, and you're now filled with joy and contentment. You were once living a life to please yourself, and now the greatest pleasure you have is in pleasing God and in serving others. And no one can tell you that didn't happen to you. You can argue about everything else, but they can't argue about the change that took place in you. You know who you were, and you know who you are in Christ. And this blind man's testimony matters. And it makes a difference in this story. And it makes a difference in your life. Now, I'm not saying you elevate your testimony over the words of Scripture. I'm just saying when a lot of people are arguing in Scripture, you can just say, look, let me tell you what God did for me. Let me tell you what he did in my life. And no one can argue that. In fact, I love how even as you follow some of the tenses here, it's the, the blind man says, he put mud on my eyes, past tense. And I washed, past tense. And then he says, and I see, present tense. This man is now different because of Christ. This man has been changed. Is there some things that happened to him? And now he's saying, but now I can see. It's all different. And so now that the Pharisees have, have heard it from the horse's mouth, let's see how they respond. B, there in your outline, Sabbath regulations, sinners, and signs, all here in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Now the Pharisees, as you know, had strong convictions about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted by God as the fourth commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so the Pharisees wanted to be very careful not to break the principle of remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. So they began to add extra rules about what you could and could not do so as to be careful not to break the Sabbath. And the problem with this is that they began to add an outward emphasis on obedience and they forgot all about the inward focus of the heart. The Jews ventured away from the Bible and came up with the Talmud, 
which is a written version of Jewish oral traditions. They hold it up on par with Scripture itself. And that's wrong. Only the Bible's divinely inspired. And they began to follow not Scripture alone, but Scripture plus the Talmud, which added extra things. And the extra things in the Talmud would prohibit Jews from engaging in certain activities not mentioned in the Bible. There was no less than 39 of these Sabbath regulations that Jews were not to practice in. For example, they taught that you should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, and that would be reaping. Sorry, ladies. They also said that you could only eat an egg which had been laid on the Sabbath if you first killed the chicken for Sabbath bearing the egg. They also said a donkey could be let out of the stable on the Sabbath, but the harness and saddle had to be placed on the donkey the day before. If the lights were on when the Sabbath came, Sabbath began at sundown, you could not blow them out. If they had not yet been lit in time, then you could not light them. Another regulation was that it was unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. I kind of think we should keep that one. (laughs) There was an exception, however, to this, in that you were allowed to move a ladder on the Sabbath, but you could only move it four steps. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments on the Sabbath since that could have been construed as carrying a burden. It was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the ground because that made mud and mud was mortar and that was work. This last one may have been the one they had in question here when the Pharisees accused Jesus of not keeping the Sabbath. Keep in mind that they are accusing Jesus of not keeping the man-made Sabbath laws. Of course, Jesus kept all of the true Old Testament laws perfectly. He was without sin. He's also inaugurating a new covenant which make the old covenant regulations to become obsolete. And we know that the New Testament church began to worship on the first day of the week to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord. They no longer worshiped on the Sabbath, but as we do by Christian tradition from the New Testament on the first day of the week. Furthermore, Jesus taught us a proper perspective on the Sabbath in Mark 2, 27 and 28. Just listen. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is there to serve you. You're there to serve the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In the book of Hebrews, we learn that the Sabbath points to the spiritual rest that we find in Christ. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So this should all help us have a proper view of the Sabbath so that we can see through the pharisaical attempt of accusing Jesus of somehow breaking the Sabbath. He did not. Instead, Jesus taught us that works of necessity and works of mercy have always been allowed on the Sabbath. So there's always the opportunity to get your horse out of the ditch or to heal a man on the Sabbath, those are never prohibited anywhere in the Old Testament. 
but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? In other words, some Pharisees believed Jesus broke the Sabbath, but other Pharisees didn't understand how Jesus, if he was a sinner by breaking the Sabbath, could still do such signs as healing the man born blind. They were perplexed. I would just offer a quick word of caution here as well. Not everyone who does a sign or appears to do something miraculous is of God. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3 warns us of falling prey to the miraculous as being the only litmus test for truth. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3 again, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, in that text, he's just warning us, there may be other false prophets who are enabled by the power of Satan to some degree to do other signs. Just because they do a sign doesn't mean it's legit. Just because you witness a sign or a wonder doesn't mean that prophet has the truth. Do you remember the magicians of Egypt who turned their staffs into serpents just like Moses had done with Aaron's rod? But this doesn't mean that the Egyptian gods are truly divine. There was the witch of Endor who King Saul interacted with. There are certain powers that the Antichrist is said to have. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, it says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. My point is simply this. God's word is the only supreme authority. The reason that the Pharisees were divided is because some of them were only looking to the man-made Sabbath laws as the ultimate test. Other Pharisees were looking at the miracle that Jesus did as the ultimate test. But what they should have been doing is looking to Jesus himself. The way to know for a fact that Jesus is the Messiah is to look to God's word, the Bible, and then examine Jesus' actions and his miracles and his teaching in light of Scripture. To say it another way, it is not about Sabbath regulations and it is not about signs themselves. It's about listening to Jesus. It's about looking to Jesus. It's about loving Jesus. It's about having your eyes opened by Jesus. It's about having your life changed by Jesus. It's about being born again by, get this, the living word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and everything that Jesus ever did always pointed to his father and it pointed to the message of redemption for the world for all who would repent and believe. And so the reality is Isaiah 35 does talk about the Messiah opening the eyes of the blind and Jesus does. The scriptures talk about Jesus being crucified and raised from the dead. And he was. And the scriptures talk about Jesus coming back again. And he will. The traditions of men never overpower the reality of life and power and truth 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can redeem us of our sin. And so what we've learned today from the man born blind is number four, we learned the transformation that Jesus brings should be dramatic. Number five, we learned that this man's traditions would never outpower the reality of the person and work of Christ. And let me just touch on the last one because it's super short. Number six, truth spoken always trumps bad theology. Number 17, verse 17. So they said to, to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said he is a prophet. Your first blank says, what do you say about him? The Pharisees press in again. What are you going to say about him? Rest assured that this isn't coming from a heart that wants to learn. This is coming from the unbelieving Jews who want to kill Jesus and persecute anyone who identifies with Christ. This is almost like a threat. If this man says that Jesus is the Son of God, then they will likely persecute him just like they are persecuting Jesus. You might want to think twice before you answer this question. Again, what's the question? What do you say about him? How you answer this question will determine what the world thinks about you. If you say, I am religious, that's fine. If you say, I believe in God, that's fine. If you say, I'm a person of faith, that's fine. But if you say, I believe in Jesus as the only way to heaven, if you say, I believe that Jesus meant what he said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, if you say, I believe what the Bible teaches about marriage, gender, and sexuality, then prepare to be persecuted. What do you say about him? Is he the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Or will you acquiesce to the culture of modernity and popularity? What do you say about him? Think twice before you answer this question, for your life depends on it. This man's answer at this time was, your last blank, he is a prophet. What he said may have been simple, but at least it wasn't wrong. What this man said was simple and true. It is far better than what the Pharisees were saying about Jesus. They were saying that Jesus was born by an illegitimate birth. The Pharisees were saying that Jesus was a blasphemer. The Pharisees were saying that Jesus did his works by the power of Beelzebul, who is Satan. What this man says is indeed true. And we shall see throughout the rest of this chapter this man's eyes will be opened wider and wider until he can see the whole Christ. Is it possible that this is also a reference to Deuteronomy 18:15, where Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, there is no doubt that Jesus is a prophet. And there's also no doubt that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And there is still much more to come in this intriguing interaction between the man who was healed of blindness and the Pharisees who are still spiritually blind. And so may God open our eyes today, just as he opened the eyes of this blind man so many years ago. I appreciate the words of J.C. Ryle in closing says, such a miracle above all 
is meant to make us hopeful about our own souls and the souls of others. Why should we despair of salvation while we have such a Savior? Where is the spiritual disease that he cannot take away? He can open the eyes of the most sinful and ignorant and make them see things they never saw before. He can send light into the darkest heart and cause blindness and prejudice to pass away. Appreciate that reminder of what our Lord can do. And as you leave this morning, let me just jot these out for you. And you can talk about them maybe when you get home today. Has the transformation in your life been dramatic? Great point of discussion. These neighbors didn't recognize this man. Do people recognize you when your life is radically transformed? Number two, do you have a tendency to get hung up in tradition? Are you more concerned, maybe like the Pharisees, to say what happened instead of saying who is it that changed you? We need to ask a lot more of who. Who is Jesus and what is he doing as we read through scripture than sometimes just the mechanics of things that happen? Number three, are you willing to speak the truth even when it draws persecution? We're going to see next week how this man's parents were afraid to speak up because they knew they would be disciplined out of the synagogue. We must be willing to stand with the truth, fearing no one or nothing except the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many things we can learn from this blind man. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to dig a little deeper, spend a little bit more time admiring the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he approached this man and healed him, admiring even the the infancy of the faith of this blind man who starts with a little knowledge, knowing the name of Jesus, moves on to a little bit more, sees him as a prophet, moves on to a little bit more, claims himself to be a disciple, moves on to a little bit more, begins to worship the King of glory. I pray that you would do that same work in so many hearts in this room at this very moment. Open our eyes wider and wider and wider until we see the whole Christ. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your love for us. Open our eyes, Lord. Allow us to see and continue to see the beauty of the horizon of our Lord Jesus Christ coming for his own at the end of time. May we live every day in light of that final day when we shall see Christ as he is in all of his glory. Do a special work of grace in each heart on this day as we contemplate these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.